Raul and the guys have asked me to record the author's note that I included in Storm from the Shadows, not the Shadow of Saganami. The reason they've asked me to jump ahead and do that is that there were some unanticipated changes in how the books after Saganami were written and how the series now lays out. In fact, there were still more changes after Storm from the Shadows, but this still explains what happened fairly well. Remember that it was written in 2008, so it's the better part of 16 years old. Many readers will notice that some of the earlier chapters in this book retell or fill in between events which occurred in At All Costs. The retold material constitutes a very small portion of the entire book, and there is a definite method to my madness in taking this approach. Once upon a time, in the simpler days of yore when I first began the Honor Harrington series, I hadn't quite visualized the scale of the project upon which I'd embarked. I always knew the story that I wanted to tell, and I'd always intended to arrive at the portion of the storyline of which this book, Storm from the Shadows, is a part. What I hadn't really counted on was the degree of detail, the number of characters, and the sheer size of the canvas I was going to end up with. It isn't often that a writer is blessed with the response the Honor Harrington books have generated. When it happened to me, I was deeply gratified, and that's still true today. I also think that when readers are kind enough to support a series as strongly as these books have been supported, the writer has not only a special relationship with them, but also a special responsibility to them. At the same time, when a series extends through as many novels, 13, including Shadow of Saganami and Crown of Slaves, plus the anthologies, the writer sometimes finds himself forced to consider taking the storyline in directions of which not all of his readers are likely to approve. There's a fine balance between going where you know you have to go with a book and worrying about how you meet that special responsibility to your readership. And to be honest, the honor books reached that point about two novels ago. Some of my readers who have spoken to me at conventions know that Honor was supposed to be killed, and at all costs, under my version of what Mentor of Aresia used to refer to as his visualization of the cosmic all. I always knew that killing Honor would have been a high-risk move and that many readers of the series would have been very angry with me, but at the time I'd organized the timeline of Honor's life, that is, before I'd even begun on Basilisk Station. I hadn't really anticipated the fierce loyalty of the readership she was going to generate. Nor, for that matter, had I fully realized just how fond I was going to become of the character. Nonetheless, I remain steadfastly determined. My wife Sharon will tell you that I can sometimes be just a tad stubborn to hew to my original plan. The fact that I'd always seen Honor as being inspired by Horatio Nelson, only reinforced by determination, since the Battle of Manticore was supposed to be the equivalent of his Battle of Trafalgar. Like Nelson, Honor had been supposed to fall in battle at the moment of victory in the climactic battle which saved the Star Kingdom of Manticore and ratified her as the Royal Manticoran Navy's greatest heroine. At the same time, however, I had always intended to continue writing books in the Honorverse. The great challenge of the later books was supposed to emerge about 
25 or 30 years after Honor's death, and the primary viewpoint characters would have been her children, Raoul and Catherine. Unfortunately, or very fortunately, depending upon your viewpoint, Eric Flint screwed up my original timetable when he introduced Victor Kasha and asked me for an enemy which Manticorin and Havenite secret agents could agree to fight as allies, despite the fact that their star nations were at war. I suggested manpower, which worked very well for Eric's story, but especially when I incorporated Eric's characters into the mainstream novels and when Eric and I decided to do Crown of Slaves, it also pulled the entire storyline forward by two or three decades, which meant I wasn't going to have time to kill Honor off and get her children grown up before the manpower challenge hit Manticore. I wasn't exactly heartbroken when I realized that I no longer had any choice about granting Honor a reprieve. Not only did I think her fans would be less likely to come looking for me with pitchforks, but the closer I'd come to actually killing her, the less I'd liked the idea myself. This still left me something of a problem, however. Since I'd intended for Honor to die as the foremost officer of her navy, I'd promoted her to a point at which she had become too senior to be sent on any more death rides. In addition, I'd always envisioned two subseries extending the storyline after her death, one military and one focused on espionage and intelligence. The plan had been for Raoul to be the combat component of the storyline and Catherine to become the spook. But given that at least 25 years would have passed, I was going to need a fresh crop of captains and commanders to be Raoul and Catherine's seniors, to shape them the same way Honor had shaped officers like Scotty Tremaine, who would now be in senior flag rank positions, not ship commanders. Shadow of Saganami was supposed to introduce the midshipmen and midshipwomen who would have risen to command the ships upon which Honor's children served. To some extent, that original plan continues to hold good, although I've been forced to modify it. In particular, what I've discovered over the last two or three novels is that incorporating those two planned subsidiary series much more closely into the main series, with Honor still alive, permits me to advance the storyline on a broader front and focus on specific areas of the same story in separate novels. Thus, Shadow of Saganami and Storm from the Shadows both focus primarily on events in and around the Talbot Cluster, and Crown of Slaves and Torch of Freedom focus on the covert war between the two adversaries and on the moral issues of genetic slavery. And Mission of Honor, the next main stem book, will weave events from both of those areas together and advance the general storyline towards its final destination, which does not now necessarily include the demise of Honor Alexander Harrington. Both Torch of Freedom and Mission of Honor have been delivered and are currently in the production pipeline, so hopefully readers won't be left too long between books. One aspect of this new master scheme of mine, however, is that scenes which have appeared in one book may very well appear, usually from another character's point of view, in another book. This is not an effort simply to increase word count. Believe me, word count has never been a problem for me to come up with. 
It is intended to serve the function of more fully developing additional characters, giving different perspectives on the events they observe and participate in, filling in missing details, and, perhaps most importantly of all, nailing down exactly when these books' events occur relative to one another. So far, this appears to be working out fairly well. That doesn't necessarily mean it will continue to do so, or that something won't come along to send me off in yet another direction. But at this moment, I don't expect that to happen. So for the foreseeable future, at least, expect this pattern to continue. And I suppose I should also warn you that the ride is going to get a lot rougher for the good guys over the next few books. Welcome to Honorverse Today, the Honor Harrington podcast, brought to you by TPE Network. Let's be about it. Hello there, Honor First fans. Welcome again to our next exciting episode of Honor First Today. This is Raul Wybera, and as always, I am joined by my good friends Jim Airwood and J.P. Harvey. How are both of you tonight? Doing well. Doing well also. Hey, Raul, should we introduce the voice that our friends heard at the beginning of the episode? To kick us off? That's exactly what I was going to do. Um, those words were from the author's foreword of the book, of course, if you've read the book. And that was David Weber himself uh, reading that for us. It's sort of making an important point about, uh, well, th there's a lot of people who think some of the stuff got padded or there's just endless redundancies. And there's actually a point to it all. And we felt it would be best to let David explain it himself before we started. So that was something he was very generous in offering for us. So I hope you enjoyed it. Now, that foreword comes from the book we're going to be talking about tonight, Storm from the Shadows. And this, at least in my opinion is one of the most important and pivotal books of the entire series. Um, I, I would go as far as to call it absolutely essential reading for those who've only stuck with the uh, 14 so-called uh, main stories or main sequence. This book, more than any of the others, really hammers home, or at least that we've read so far, really hammers home the idea that the short stories and the quote unquote, side series are not spinoffs or secondary material. They are just as much primary as the Honor Harrington focus stories. In fact, the last fourth of this book, Honor and Elizabeth uh, take center stage. And to give a better perspective of that, Jim, I'm going to turn this over to you for some summary. All right. And as you said, we're talking about Storm from the Shadows, Book two of the Saganami Island series. 
Here's the summary on the back of the book. Rear Admiral Michelle Hankey was commanding one of the ships in a force led by Honor Harrington in an all-out space battle. The odds were against the Star Kingdom forces, and they had to run. But Michelle's ship was crippled and had to be destroyed to prevent superior Manticoran technology from falling into Havenite hands, and she and her surviving crew were taken prisoner. Much to her surprise, she was repatriated to Manticore, carrying a request for a summit conference between the leaders of the two sides which might end the war. But a condition of her return was that she had been officially exchanged for a Havenite prisoner of war, so she was given a command far away from the war's battle lines. What she didn't realize was that she would find herself on a collision course, not with a hostile government, but with the interstellar syndicate of criminals known as Manpower. And Manpower had its own plans for eliminating Manticore as a possible threat to its lucrative slave trade. Deadly plans, which remain hidden in the shadows. Well, there it is. You know, someday I'm going to ask David, who writes these uh, coverleaf summaries? Because they're usually pretty darn good. They, they tell you just enough to give you a good tease without spoiling things, and they're fairly accurate if you think about it. And both of those fe- both of those facts is a huge bump up over some of the liner notes I've seen or back cover notes I've seen on some books. You know what I mean? I I completely agree. the The liner notes are excellent uh, compared to many other books that I've read, which. It's like, I got to wonder if the whoever wrote the notes even read the book. So Yep, that's on one end. And on the other end, it's like, uh, okay, gee, now I don't have to read the book. You just told me how yeah. it ends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> been, both, been to both ends of that spectrum. All right, yep. <laughs> well, let's turn, it, uh, let's turn it over to JP and uh, see what he has discovered in the way of special notes for this book. All right. Well, as with the others, this one was published by Ban March of 2009 in the timeline of the books or of the publications. And this one is a beast of a book like the last several that we've read coming in at 755 pages when it was initially published. The events here occur in 1921 PD. So if you're tracking the dates of the events and the stories, this one overlaps with the two previous books. And that was the whole motive for having uh, David read what he wrote at the beginning of this book about why we're seeing that. The takeaway is that this is on purpose and it's a cool way for Mr. Weber to provide depth and breadth to the overall story at, at the point when it's needed and where it's needed. And it's most noticeable, I thought, at the start of this book. But don't worry, it is not just a repeat of what you've already read. And we're going to talk more about that as we press into the discussion of the story. There is a reason why you're seeing words that you literally have seen before, but it's not going to be the same. And and, uh, we'll talk about that. So with that, let's go to some overall impressions. Jim, I'll kick it back to you. All right. So I'm, you know, I love this book. I really did. 
I, as I have many of the others, and I would number this among one of my favorites. Mm. It is. Does this mean you need to take a drink? (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll save that till later. What's, what's, what's up? Um, anyway, it's a very long book, but I was also engaged by it all the way through. Uh, I read it in just only seven days. Um, I sat down and read whenever I had any spare time. Uh, there is never a dull moment in this book and no shortage of characters, <laughs> uh, old say. and old and new. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, there is an appendix of 39 pages listing characters and very brief via bios at the end of the book. Uh, this one, unlike most of the others had a cruel cliffhanger ending, that really made me want to grab the next book and get into it. Uh, but there was also enough to digest, so I'm happy for the break in between books. And uh, I'll just kick it right back to JP. All right. I loved this one also. And I'll definitely count it as one of my favorites as well. It's almost like everything we've read so far, which is, by the way, now approximately half of the overall Honorverse content. All of that that we've read is let us to and set up this critical point in the story, which Raul was talking about just a second ago. Jim, uh, you, uh, I think there are two things that are important to pay attention to in the story, and you mentioned the first one. The appendices in the back are, are very helpful. Not only the gigantic character list, but also there's an appendix illustrating the cool uh, multi-drive missiles. So we've heard about those, we've been reading about them for a while. There, there are some awesome graphics back there that give us a picture of what these these weapons look like. Second uh, to the appendices is the authorial note at the beginning, that forward that you heard David read. And it was very appreciated, and not because I was struggling with the, the apparent repeats in the story, but very appreciated that he would take a few pages to explain why this is happening and that it, this is not just a retelling to beef up the, the page count or anything like that. There is something happening here that is a lot more than just the retelling of story parts that we already know. That explanation is absolutely worth the time to read. If you have the book and you skipped over that to go right to the story in chapter one, you need to go back, please, and read what he wrote. Well, and, and well, if you're listening to us, you've, you've heard it at the beginning here as well. Raul, how about you? Okay, like I've already said, this is one of the most important books of the series. First of all, we find out the entire story of Michelle Hanke's capture that was introduced in the last book. Uh, In fact, there's a lot of overlap uh, with that preceding story as it takes its parallel path. And some points are almost word, but, you know, actually not in in some points it is a literal word by word retelling, but there is always just enough shift in perspective or it's after we've learned something else that gives it a different context. That's a gutsy move on the author's part, and you have to do it right for it to work. And in my opinion, it's very well done here. The main story, extremely engaging, and it's really worth noting, and I'm certain JP is going to discuss this a little bit later, that the military aspects 
take something of a backseat to the other facets of the die model that uh, David uses. Uh, we get a much better picture of the Solarian League and just how corrupt of an administrative state it's become. And finally, we get the Mason alignment fully revealed, to the readers at least. Uh, let, let's just say the questions that JP started asking all the way back in that first or second anthology that was published something like nine or ten years before this book are finally getting answered. Finally, the last quarter of this book, all I can say is, wow, most of it is taking place in the Queen's office or in a conference room, but it's still some of the best reading of the series. The action's not physical, it's intellectual, as our heroes are really putting the pieces together, finally. But, to Jim's cliffhanger, will they figure everything out in time? Mesa has this Operation Oyster Bay in motion, and it does not look good at all where Mandacore is concerned. In fact, for me, it has a real feel of something very similar to Pearl Harbor, if not a couple notches worse. Yeah. <laughs> so... And from here, um, I'm going to go ahead and just segue us right into the character discussion, because so much of so, so much of the impressions that you get out of these books really come straight out of the characters. It, it's as much a character-driven saga as plot or anything else. I am not going to list all of the characters. I am not even going to try and list all of the important characters. <laughs> when you've got 30-something pages of character description and get get used to this with uh, the series going forward. There are going to be lots and lots of characters. I I'm going to pick out the ones that uh, pop into my mind or that I particularly occur to me that needs to be, should be mentioned from a going forward thought or that I think just will provide some interesting discussion. If I've not mentioned a favorite character of yours, and this is Jim or JP, go ahead and step in and bring it up. And uh, also to our listeners, there's a lot of ways to get hold of us, so please feel free feel free to send a send a note in on it, and we'll we'll make sure it uh, gets mentioned. Obviously, for the start, Michelle Mike Henke. I really love this character. I did since we first really met her and. I think she was referenced in the first, maybe not by name, but it was in the second book that we actually met the character, I believe. And I like her even more now. Yeah. She she is really something. Now, for me, she was kind of an alter ego for honor for a long time. And I mean, I mean that in the best of ways. But in this uh -huh. story, she really comes into her own. And, and, and becomes, becomes a major character that just, she's so cool. She's a lot of fun. We finally see her out of honor. Yeah. Yes. That, that's really what happens. As much, yes. She's well-developed before this, but it's always yeah. the context ties back to honor. Honor's roommate, honor's best friend, honor's fill in the blank. Sounding board or conscience. Now we're getting Mike, mm -hmm. who happens to be somebody honor knows. If, you know, with... We're watching Mike yep. be her own major character. I think, Jim, you said that right or wrong. One of you said, called her major. Yeah. It, she has been, but she mm -hmm. is indisputably a character that stands on her own, with or without honor. 
Yeah, she could have her own book yeah. series. <laughs> ooh, ooh. <laughs> well, ooh, hmm. she's going to continue in her importance, and it's going to continue to. And you know, some people could argue that Saganami is sort of Michelle's series. It's really not the way everything weaves together, but uh, she is going to continue to be of ever more increasing importance. Averse Terakoff, a new character. Call it some competition to Michael Overstegen as far as uh, fan competition mm, yeah. <laughs> goes, in a way. And, and they're pretty much peers, but the contrast between the two. He, he's another one of those characters you just can't help but like. Yeah. Both these guys, because you mentioned Overstegen. They, first contact, I, I was hesitant to like either of them, but I didn't know why. And real quick realized I like both of these characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I liked over. I liked over Stegen right from the very start, from the first time he appeared, just because of the way he was written. I mean, the literally the words, the way they were written. <laughs> because as I've said before, he reminds me of Quint. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Michael Overstegen is back in this book yeah. too. Yes. And he's in full form. So you, if you want people who are wanting more of him are getting their wish. Yes. And when you think of it, uh, one of the nice things about Avers Terakov and Michael Overstegen, they kind of make something plain for the series. Mm-hmm. Honor might be the best of the best, but the best of Manticore is a pretty high bar already and michael overstegen and avers are definitely part of that mm-hmm. and then put mike uh hinky at the head of this all and mesa is in for uh <laughs> explicative deleted storm full of trouble <laughs> you were saying jp no i was i'm i'm enjoying ah, okay. that all of these three are together and those two in particular mm-hmm. they michelle stands alone in some sense right i mean she's she is now there even without these two guys, but to get Tarakov and Overstegen together in the same book with Michelle yep. also in play, this is cool stuff. And the, the, it's going to get stepped up one more notch a little bit later, so just a little tease. You, you'll think about something I once said way back when, uh, when, when that happens. Uh, other characters that we've seen before that are coming back here, uh, Naomi Kaplan. I, it's another character that I liked. She was a junior officer way back then. Uh, Helen Zawicki's, uh No, she was. Well, no, she was the XO. Uh, Abigail Hearns was the uh, was the uh, XO for Helen. Uh, Naomi's captain of her own ship now. And oh God, that what what she went through, what what she went through just rips your heart apart. She had some of the hardest duty that you will that I could imagine you having in the military, uh, that being watching your comrades be blown up and duty obligating you to leave them. Mm-hmm. That, that had to be crushing. And as I mentioned, we have Abigail Hearns back. Uh, she's sort of honored junior in some ways from Grayson. And she's also uh, Kaplan's uh, tactical officer. Now another character that's back again, uh, of course, we get Estelle Matsuko, Baroness Medusa, who's the imperial governor for for the Talbot uh, Quadrant, mm-hmm. Quadrant Sector. Um, 
And Augustus Kumalo is back as the sort of admiral in charge. And it's kind of a shared responsibility there between he and uh, Mike Hinkey because he, he's technically the senior admiral, but she's kind of independent command in some ways. So th- there's an interesting uh, power share dynamic there that takes ca- that ta- and it's there to take into account her actual combat uh, experience while it leaves him free to focus on his administrative. You know, that's another character I didn't like at first. And the more you see him, the more you mm-hmm. like him. Yep. I do have to mention a little bit of uh, Michelle's staff. Uh, Frazier Hausman uh, is a new character. I, I think in, in some ways he's, you know, okay. Yeah. He's the Hausman we think of or from the Hausman family we think of. And it's, kind of nice seeing him just from the perspective it's like okay so just because you have that particular last name doesn't mean <laughs> doesn't make you a bad person you're a total slime yep yeah. same as with michael overstegen i guess right yeah yeah well michael's openly critical of his of his family but yes exactly uh cynthia Lecter is back as uh M- michelle's right hand and uh, helen zawicki is back again of course uh, she's going to have a role throughout. Hmm? Yep. Yay. And we have a new character, Gervais Winton, a bunch of other names, <laughs> Archer, who really just prefers to go by Gwen. Yeah. Yeah. New and we officer, learn, we learn why. Gotta love him. Why he's called Gwen. Yep. 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 He, well like, written. You can't help but like him almost yeah. instantly. And mm-hmm. curse you, David Weber. <laughs> From the moment I meet him, I'm spending every second just hoping and praying nothing bad happens to the guy. Yeah. Yeah. His his tendency to kill off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I guess you, you, we, we actually said why he's called Gwen for folks who are listening in. It's, it's his, it's his elaborate initials. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. He, he's distantly related to the Winton. And rather distant, except his mom has this thing about status and he got stuck with the name and mm-hmm. he spends most of his time trying to keep that on the side. It's like, no, that's, I, I am not defined. I'm not defined by who my distant relatives are. Yeah. And that's actually going to be an element of the story as we go in, which is why I bring up uh, the next two characters. First of all, Henri Kreitzman is back. He is now the Talbot Minister of War. Hmm. And as interesting as he is and as much of a role as he plays in the meetings and the decision-making process that goes on in this book, the main reason that I mention Henri is his assistant, Helga Botiz. I love that character. She hates oligarchs, and for some reason, she doesn't see the difference between an oligarch and the Manticoran aristocracy <laughs> and oh yeah Gwen is seriously crushing on her mm-hmm. so yes. badly that even uh, yeah so badly that even Mike notices <laughs> but we're, we're going to see Helga and Gwen and Naomi and Helen kind of you know they're all this they're all key assistants or key associates of the major players so we're we're going to be seeing a little bit of communication and collaboration between the two. That's just really fun to watch and pay next, attention to the and next you, generation. 
in a way, yeah. the young or the young in, school, in, in but a not way. in the sense we'll talk about later. Yep. And and I bring this up now because we actually do see this midway, maybe two thirds of the way through the book. We, we we really see the bare bones, the bones of that laid down, mm. and that's just going to continue. Let's talk about some of the bad guys. Joseph Bing, arrogant, slimy, dead. Thank God. What a doofball. Ba- <laughs> yep. Has no business being in command of a garbage scow, much less a battle cruiser task force. Well, it, it makes me think of a line that Captain Kirk came up with for, for Dr. McCoy in the original series, where he said, start thinking with your head and stop thinking with your glands. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting this it. Guy, this guy hates Manticore, and that's what rules him. He, yes. Yep. He's and the perfect worst product of of the league yeah yep and and it and it's why he has his downfall he doesn't think he's a tool and he's a tool that's manipulated in starting the into starting the solarian league war yeah he's a he's a he's of the mentality and mindset that was needed and he was placed where he would have the most by the people who did the placing, the most desirable effect. Yeah, and a 19 or 20-year-old would say he sure is a tool. <laughs> yes. Yep. Uh, to contrast him, there's Captain Mazawa, who, who's one of his, who was, I guess was, his flag captain, who really kind of gets the idea that across that not all of the Solarians are ignorant a-holes. Not all of them should be judged by what we see with Bing. Mm-hmm. Just, just like Havenites. Yep, exactly. Then there's uh, Maitland Askew. Askew or Askew? I'm usually good with name pronunciations, but uh, Maitland Askew, uh, who is somebody that is going to be hating the fact that he was right. Mm. We're not going to see more of him, but we are going to see more of his efforts and work as it is going to play an important role. So he definitely needs to be mentioned. Mm Mm-hmm. Over on the Monica side, we've got uh, Roberto Tyler, who somehow is still Monica's president. We've got Lorcan Verrocchio, who is the head of the OFS, who are the slime balls that are kind of pulling the strings. Mm-hmm. And Hangbo Hunyan, who is his assistant, but also the person pulling his strings, who are, who are, who in turn, strings are being pulled by the Mason alignment, but we'll get to there that. There is so much with these guys of this little entanglement going on in the background that, um, you know, that, that's going to lead to nothing but trouble, period. Yep. Yep. There are also two characters in the Solarian League that are kind of out in the boonies, but they're mentioned. Captain Daoud Alfanadahi and Irene Teague. If David went to the trouble to bring those characters in at this point, he's obviously giving a hint. There's going to be something important happening with them behind the scenes as the story progresses. So they need to be they need to be brought to readers' attention. It's like, okay, this is definitely a pay attention to. And if you think Joseph Bing was bad, then there's uh Admiral Crandall, mm-hmm. Sandra Crandall, very minor 
very minor character here. She's out there somewhere. Uh, her name needed to be mentioned. So she's there with a lot of ships, a crappy attitude, and blood on her yeah. eye, basically. She's she's dangerous. She's just as dangerous as uh, Bing. More dangerous because she at least is not incompetent. And, and the thing of it is, is she's not only dangerous to her enemies, she's dangerous to her own people. Yeah. Yep. Let's wrap up with the Solarian League. We finally get someone, the name will be used later, but I'm going to use it now. Uh, the permanent undersecretaries, which will become known as the Mandarins. Definitely worth mentioning. We're, these guys are... These guys are the ones that ultimately rule the Salarian League. They're permanent. They're head of their particular bureaucracies. You've got uh, Inna Kennedy, uh, Kolokostov, Nathan McCartney, uh, Amasupe Quartermain, uh, Malachi Abruzzi. Those four cover everything from education, the economics, uh, defense. Then there's Rajan Pet Rajani, who heads the, who's in charge of the military. Now he's not actually one of those permanent undersecretaries, though. But he he's sort of a unacknowledged, almost equal power within the league, except that the four definitely have a habit of cutting him out of the loop. So those those are the movers and shakers behind the Solarian League that are now introduced. And then there's the Mason alignment. Oh, boy. The onion is finally revealed. <laughs> ah, the ones worth mentioning at this point are obviously Albrecht Detweiler, who, while most people don't know it or have never even heard the name, is really the most powerful man in the galaxy. He's got the resources. He's got the connections to make almost anything happen. And he is absolutely ruthless in doing exactly that. Also worth mentioning are Benjamin Detweiler and Colin Detweiler, uh, two of his several sons. Yeah, and the sons are not... This is weird. Because yeah. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> they're clones. <laughs> yeah. Send, well, send in Albrecht's the a clone as well, don't forget. <laughs> right. In fact, he's a clone of the next Detweiler that needs to be mentioned here, Leonard Detweiler, who is the originator of the master plan uh, all of 600 years ago. Yeah, I, I don't know why. Beowulf. This just all feels so slimy. Yeah, because it is. <laughs> ah. Because it is. One of the things I actually do like about what where the story goes with the Detweilers is it touches in to the issue of cloning and... You know, you, you've got, well, we already knew the slaves were clones, but the Detweilers, the Masons, the actual alignment that actually is running things, not all, but many of them are clones as well. Yeah, well, the slaves, so it gets, the slaves are clones, but they're also programmed for what they do. They, they're given a role. These guys, I, I don't know the. Oh, they're, they're, they're gene engineered. They're genetically engineered for superior, superiority as well. Yeah. Whether they're clones or whether they're selective breeding, there's genetic engineering to, you know, alpha, yeah, alpha lines, gamma lines, beta lines. Yeah. I've been viewing the so, slaves as, as creations that 
by type emphasize certain skills, mm-hmm. a feature yep. a skill, strength or what have you, uh, looks, it could be whatever it is. But these guys are either all of that or all of that and more. They're, they're the leaders for a reason. And Raul, I think you said master plan, right? I mean, that harkens to trying to create a master, a master race. race. Yeah. And we don't have to dance around it too much because that that association is made in here. That's Leonard Detweiler's original plan to maximize human yes. potential. Now, the, in, the weird thing is that, that this is going to open a debate at some point. Yeah, because Mike, the first question that debates. pops into my head is, is Leonard Detweiler Joseph Mengele in, you know, yeah. in, in this series? That's one of the debates. Oh, no that kidding. Y- there's plenty of room to discuss. Huh. Uh, then there's the debate of what makes a person a person? Who, who's yeah. The, uh, you, you look at the Detweiler family and, I mean, th- there's, okay, yeah, they're clones, but are they people? The same question comes up with uh, the genetic slaves. Right. Because if the slaves are not, then how, how can, these, can be? these guys be? It's there's a whole can of cool worms here, and it's not a it's not it's a it's not a good topic. Yeah, it's not a but, pleasant thing. But um, but the thing is, is we do see slaves that are not following their programming. Yeah. Yeah, they're not automatons, but they are. No, um, they've become individuals. You got you got to be careful though using the word programming though. It's It's genetic coding. It's not mental. It's right, Um, or genetic propensity towards, or genetic leaning towards. So it's definitely programming in that kind of DNA sense. But like you said, it's not turning them into automatons. They're not robots. They're they're people, but we're watching the debate form here that, but are they people, people, or are they something, are they property? Mm-hmm. Is this a dog or is this a human? Well, are, do robots dream of electric yes. sheep? No, no, I'm sorry. Do, do androids. Try that yeah. again. Do androids dream of electric sheep? Two other characters that need to be mentioned from the Mason alignment. And I know there's a whole lot of others. Aldona Anisimovna is back and in an increasingly important role. Um, and I also want to mention Frederick uh, Topolev, mostly because of Operation Oyster Bay. This is the guy who's leading that task force up to some sort of no good. Yeah. And lastly, for a spinoff series that is supposedly unrelated uh, to the main series, the last fourth of the book, very heavily features Honor Harrington, Elizabeth Winton, the Alexander brothers, and actually a few other important characters from uh, key characters from mm-hmm. uh, Elizabeth's cabinet. That I'll tell you what I, that meeting was amazing. That was worth the price of the book when yes. when when Honor laid the cards on the table. It was worth the yep. price well, of and the we, book. You know. We get it. We get some of this group early in the book as well. That kind of sets the groundwork for that final meeting. But yeah, that yeah, they, that yes. last fourth of the book, there have been smaller hot issues that have bubbled up between different combinations of these primary characters. 
the, and you could almost say that that was emotionally and mentally preparing us for what happens in the last quarter of this book, which is like a nuke going off compared to those earlier yep. tense uh, debates and discussions and things that have gone on where, at least for me, every one of those was like, ooh, this is a little tense. When when this mm-hmm. meeting happens, when these meetings happen at the end of the book, it makes all that other stuff look silly. Yeah. And not like that was wasted yeah. story silly. It's like chi- we go from child's play to a huge, very weighty, real debate about stuff that is super important. And we get to watch and in the, the course of that, struggle with it. In, in the course of that, we see some of these characters, some of these original characters in a new light. Yeah. Or in, in a yeah. big, or in a deeper understanding. Yeah. We'll probably co- be really coming cool back to this. Done here. We'll probably be coming back to this point later. Yeah. I absolutely guarantee it. Uh, if nothing else, when we get to the quotes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there hey, are a few places Raul, to mention. Can I yes. can I throw one more comment in on our Detweiler buddies? Real oh, quick please! Because um, we were talking about you know the mass this master plan and how ominous these guys are and the setup that we <clears throat> have for um, genetic slaves and clones and who's human and who isn't human and all that. And I because it's exciting. It I I, I want to comment to our friends out there listening to us, we are all very aware that that is not new ground, that there's a lot of science fiction written that wrestles with the problem, primarily focused on, on when, when androids become sentient or how do you know, turn tests, there's been movies, there's been books. It's awesome stuff. It is a classic science fiction theme going back at least 60, 70. Oh, actually it goes all the way back to RUR. But we're we are aware of that talking about this. So we're not suggesting that that David Weber is onto some really super cool new subject within the sci-fi universe. What Weber is doing here is what is so cool. How he's yep. setting up these moral dilemmas and discussions and arguments. And some of it is I think it's gonna be potentially uh, it, it's difficult. It's going to be a new kind of hard because he does go a few places or that I think readers in the past who have read other other authors that deal with this stuff might have gone only in their own minds and Weber's going to hit us in the head with it. I, and and I, uh, it's, it's good stuff. So if you hear us talking about that going, yeah, yeah, I've read all the stories about when the when the robot gets smart enough that it's a person and I saw all the movies and all that hang on because there's some stuff here that Weber's going to do that you're going to have to take some Tylenol for I think. Yep, you're not going to have to wait long. I mean, maybe all the way as long as the next book. <laughs> yeah. No, he <laughs> he 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 gets it he gets it messy in here and and I just have to believe it's going to get messier. He's not setting the stage to walk away from it. But sorry, I wanted to throw that in because we were. No, 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 good. That's good because the very next thing I was going to bring up was the Mason alignment. We haven't built to know who these guys are because now we know what we need to know. I think there's a huge story here. They're fully revealed finally, or are they? (laughs) We should. And it's not just Mesa, there's some place we don't know yet, though 
you know, those of us who've read our, our already do. So there, there's really some much bigger plans than people realize uh, going around. I, I wanted to mention them first because of all the time we've spent on the Detweilers. However, Tal the Talbot sector absolutely gets our Talbot quadrant. Um, I, I, yeah, it's not the Talbot. I think it's the quadrant now, right? Once they, it's a quadrant now. Yeah. Once they joined, it was originally the Talbot cluster and it's really too spread out to really call it a cluster properly. Yeah. And it's the Talbot quadrant. That's the main location of the action in this book. In fact, if you really want to be honest, that that's really the distinguishing factor between the three quote semi, you know, series is the honor Harrington books really focus more on what's happening on Manticore as a central stage. The Saganami Island has more of the main, you know, the, the main stage tends to be the Talbot quadrant and crown of slaves tends to be more of the Maya sector itself, though you can shift into any of those other stages just as you know easily as well yeah or even mesa itself or the solarian league itself and we're going to see all of that as we go through uh we have flax the regional capital of the talbot quadrant which is where a lot of the planning and it's i mean if if the talbot uh, quadrant is going to be the center stage flax is front stage for that new tuscany if you remember, I warned you guys earlier to keep an eye on the place. This is where the uh, Solarian League Navy really sticks their foot into it. And much deeper than they realize, even. Beowulf gets some passing mentions, but I'm going to tell you now, keep a close eye on it. We, we've seen some interest and hints about Beowulf for a whole lot of books now. Uh, in some ways, almost since Sonner's mother was introduced. It, it, it's a place to keep an eye on. Monica, in this story, OFS's central location for their and Manpower's uh, manipulations, that, that's the main focus of it. Of course, Manticore and the Solarian League Navy as organizations. You know, I'm glad they had some of the decent people we saw out of the Solarian League Navy. Because you needed them if you were going to care about these guys. They're 40 years out of, you know, out of date and don't know it yeah. and have no idea just how out of their, just how out of their league or rather, what am I, what's the way I'm trying They have no idea just how out of the league they are from the rest of the galaxy. Mm. Even with a war and raging in front of them mm -hmm. because they're not participants really participants, their arrogance has caused them to, to dismiss whatever they could have been learning. Yep. If they would have just watched this war, actually watched it between Haven, wars between Haven and Manticore, I think they would see things differently. But they, why would they waste their time as their mindset? Yep. You all fight it out, whatever. You kids are cute. And In some ways, they're the victims of their own success. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a World War One well civil U.S. Civil War World War One lesson here too because there Euro, there were European countries involved in the Civil War in the United States in a variety of capacities that mm -hmm. watched that 
form of battle grow uglier than it had ever been and stagnate. And they could have or should have arguably gone back to Europe and said, here's what we have just watched unfold for four years. How we think of conducting warfare in the future might need to change. And then, yeah. but it didn't. And you can flash forward to World War One, where Go to World there War were One. apparently no lessons learned. And you can you can mm-hmm. fill in the reasons why historians have written about this stuff, but it's going to come down to things we see in the Solarian League to some extent: arrogance, you know, yeah, the Americans, the silly, silly, you know, like I said earlier, silly kids. And of course they, of course they couldn't yep. get a good war done right, and all these things. Well, uh, Europe and World War One became a, a, a horrible, horrible mess. And I mean, wars are bad anyway, but. There's a lot of good arguments made that if they had just paid attention and gotten out of their own heads, that things might have been different. To include even mm-hmm. the willingness to go to war as quickly as as that happened. But I don't know that that was a point David was trying to make when he wrote this. But that's there. We see um, we see this Solarian. JP, arrogance. I think it was. I, I think it was because the final organization. The final thing from the places organizations that I wanted to bring mm-hmm. up was SLN Task Force 496, which is Crandall's command. And everything you just described is illustrated in her command of that task force. Yeah. And and I think of Bing too, to some extent. It, to Bing and some extent, but it's her response to what happens to Bing, right. you know, beyond just the simple arrogance. Uh, that I think you just hit, I, I think you just hit a nail on the head. Now we have just had a massive discussion of characters here. So I need to rest my voice a bit, Jim, let's talk about the story. All right. So I've got a summary here. I'll read a section and I'll pause. And if you have any comments, just chime in. Okay. Honor's 8th Fleet continues to make devastating raids into Havenite territory. Shannon Fouracre's Moriarty Missile System enables Haven planetary defense systems to fire unprecedented masses of missiles at the Manticoran invading forces. In the Battle of Salon, the Manticoran missile defense systems are overwhelmed by the new Havenite weapons. One of Honor's super dreadnoughts is destroyed outright, and others are damaged beyond repair. Mike Hankey's flagship, Ajax, winds up with its hyperdrive offline and many other systems damaged, and her crew unable to launch an escape. Somehow, the crew manages to make enough repairs so they can use shuttles to get away. While plans are being made for a counterattack, Anki's flag captain orders her and her staff off the ship before the attack begins. The Havenite fleet approaches the apparently evacuated Ajax. Those remaining on the ship fire all remaining missile pods into the Haven fleet, catching them by surprise. The Havenites sustain a lot of damage and answer by destroying Ajax and all remaining ships in Hankey's forces. Yeah, uh, this is one of the areas where we see a lot of duplication uh, of pieces, but there is so much additional context. For example, we don't see any of the stuff that's happening on board Ajax. Um, 
you know, and this is what's nice about it. You already know Michelle's alive. You already know from the last book they mentioned that where she's going to end up being yeah. and, and that she comes back. And it still was written well enough to keep you on the edge of your seat. We're seeing yeah. it from, from a fresh perspective. Yeah. Well, there's so, yes. there's so much more, mm-hmm. which leads us to the next section. Mike is thought to be dead because it is thought she didn't make it off her flagship before it was destroyed. However, she boarded the last escaping shuttle with two of her officers and sustained multiple injuries as the ship exploded around them. They are picked up by the Havenite fleet and become prisoners of war. So yeah, that that's also a, a recap, a a uh, an expanded recap. <laughs> okay, moving along. Thomas Theisman mandates that prisoners of war are to be treated in a fair and humane manner, receiving medical treatment as needed. Mike begins her recovery in a comfortable hospital and receives visits from Theisman and President Pritchard. When she recovers, Mike is put in command of Manticorn prisoners on an island facility on Haven. She spends six months as commanding officer of the prisoners of war until she is summoned to meet with Theisman and Pritchard. During the meeting, Mike is informed she will be paroled. In return, Pritchard asks Mike to petition Elizabeth to meet at a peace summit in a place of the Queen's choosing. Mike must also give her legally binding oath she will not command another military force or otherwise act against the interests of Haven. She agrees and is sent back to Manticore. I've got to say, I liked the way they brought back the old uh, sailing vessel concept of parole yeah. where the commanding officers are concerned. Yeah, which I, um, I learned I, I learned from this. So mm-hmm. now the, the the terms technically were until you know, she would her the terms of her parole were would be ended when equivalent officers from that were captured from Haven were repatriated. Yeah, were exchanged, essentially. Yeah. So the, the, there was an endpoint. There was actually an endpoint to the terms of the parole. It wasn't just blanket forever and ever forward, too. But yeah, the, the way it hailed back to the old British concepts or the old naval sailing. Uh, Navy concepts really was cool. Yeah. So, you know, and then of course it didn't hurt returning a very important high up person, uh, from Manticore to try to show some sincerity in, in the Uh upcoming peace talks. That was the compulsion. The primary driver for, for doing this was the hope or the assumption on Pritchard's part that Elizabeth would, this would be more than we want to, we want to exchange prisoners. And Mm -hmm. the whole thing is Michelle's going back in a formal capacity to deliver that message. Yeah. And right. And I, everyone assumed that at best Elizabeth would entertain it at best, but it would only be because of Michelle's relationship to the queen. Yeah. And I'm going to include in that her rank, all of that. But so, I think Pritchard felt like this was a this was a surprise opportunity that they could end this war because they had Michelle in their hands, not because they had some admiral in their hands or 
you know, some other senior mm-hmm. officer, it was her. She was key to it, and that's why they entertained the thought of paroling her mm-hmm. with conditions. Yep. And they're starting they're starting to get the idea. In fact, they're obviously figuring it out first because it started with them that there was some manipulation in starting this war. Yes. So Pritchard's got a real strong interest in trying to end it and undo the mistake. Mm-hmm. So, after the disastrous battle of Monica, resulting in Monica becoming a vassal of Manticore and the public exposure of all those involved in the plot, including Manpower and the Solarian League's Office of Frontier Security, Manpower immediately launches another plot to expel Manticore from the Quadrant and cause another conflict between the Star Kingdom and the League. Using the arrogance of the OFS and the Solarian League Navy, Manpower manipulates the new Tuscan Republic to engineer a false conflict between itself and Manticore. Aldona Anisimovna, a Manpower agent, gets the new Tuscans to support a plot tricking them into believing they can preserve their sovereignty. There are a series of incidents between new Tuscan merchant ships and Manticoran forces charged with inspections as they enter Manticoran territory. Then, a fleet of ships commanded by Admiral Joseph Bing is dispatched to Talbot. Yeah, here we go. We've been talking about this guy. Yeah, here we go. (laughs) Bing is not only viciously anti-Manticoran, as well as incompetent. He is also oblivious to the developing plot and thinks his purpose for being sent to Talbot is to stop any Manticorn aggressive actions against New Tuscany. Mike learns about Bing's attitude and his hatred of all things Manticorn, but is powerless to do anything about the Solarian presence in the area. So we already, we see something's, something bad is getting ready to happen. Yep. Uh, and got, Michelle uh, we, knows it and there's not much she can do about it yet. No, no. She knows that there's somebody out there with a hard head. <laughs> All right. As the crisis develops, Albrecht Detweiler, the leader of Manpower and Mesa, meets with his cloned sons and others about future plans. The Mason alignment, the true power behind the apparently unpolitical Masons, makes plans to emerge from the shadows and directly attack the Manticorn system with a new secret weapon. They have stealth ships that travel without impeller drives that are completely undetectable by current means. We learn that manpower is nothing more than a front for the alignment run by Detweiler and other genetically engineered oligarchs bent on dominion of all life in the galaxy. So, you remember my, if you've, if you've noticed, I, I've occasionally dropped the word onion for the last yeah. several books. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and listeners have noticed it too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Did yeah. Did he actually say onion? <laughs> yes, I yes, Jeff, I I did. I was I I was hoping some of our listeners would ca- would catch that and catch the humor of it. 
New Tuscany scuttles one of its own merchant ships as a Manticoran vessel approaches for inspection, attempting to make it look like it was the Manticoran ship, even though it is obvious that the merchant ship was destroyed internally, Bing hastens to protect them from further aggression. Admiral Kumalo and Mike, unaware of Bing's presence in the system, dispatch four destroyers to complain about their tactics. As soon as the destroyers arrive on the scene, Anisimovna uses a remote-controlled nuclear device to destroy the largest New Tuscan space station in orbit of the planet, killing tens of thousands of New Tuscan citizens. Bing assumes the station was destroyed by the Manticoran destroyers and immediately orders his forces to fire on the Manticoran ships. Three of them are destroyed and the Manticore finds itself in armed conflict with the Solarian League. Yeah, this was what I was talking about uh, before with uh, Kaplan. It, it, it was painful for her to read, really painful to read because she is sitting there having to watch three of her colleagues get completely wiped out, not be able to do anything to help, and basically, in her mind, run away. Even though it was her duty, it was absolutely her duty and the right thing to do to get the heck out of there and get a word back to her superiors who need to know this. It doesn't make it any easier, and you, you, you see a good batch of survivor's guilt. Yeah. So... In the meantime, the events of New Tuscany couldn't have happened at a worse time as Lester Tourville leads the Havenites in the Battle of Manticore, resulting in the near elimination of the offensive capabilities of both Manticore and Haven. Detweiler sees this as a prime opportunity and orders that his secret weapon be deployed in the Manticoran system. The Mason Alignment Navy takes their stealth ships to Manticore. Hmm. Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, the setup for this Pearl Harbor-ish thing. Yeah. Mike learns of the massacre at New Tuscany and orders all of her resources there. When she arrives, she orders Bing to stand down, giving him fair warning about her battle capabilities being far better than his. Bing thinks Mike is bluffing and refuses. Mike repeats her warning several times and gets no response. So she orders the launch of missiles against Bing's flagship from a far distance outside the engagement capabilities of the Solarian League Navy. When Bing's ship is destroyed, his second-in-command agrees to stand down, and the SLN is given its first defeat in centuries. I love also its biggest defeat. Yeah. It was neat to watch Michelle and her team labor through doing their best to determine specifically what ship Bing was on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. He's out there. He's got some ships with him. They die. Yeah. She did everything. To the best of her ability, she wanted to take him out and minimize the damage, giving an opportunity for what we, I think, what we saw, right? Where the second, steps in and says okay stop 
Oh, well, she, we didn't, the point. she didn't want any more loss of life. She right. did everything but beg this guy to stand yes, down. Please <laughs> stand down. Yeah. But, it, and, but well, he couldn't understand. He couldn't believe it. Well, <laughs> he he can't see through his, um, he can't see through his bigotry. Mm-mm. Neo bars. Well, this How was also they? the ludicrous distance equivalent of ludicrous speed, too, that she was talking about destroying him from. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the, the ranges at which she was saying, hey, I can do this at this range. Well, of course, on the uh, the flip side is the fact that she would make that threat at such an obscene range ought to tell you there might be something behind the bluff enough to, so that you take it seriously, at least. And yeah. his arrogance blinded him. Mm-hmm. So she, she kind of had a feeling, I think, that, yeah, she was going to have to destroy, she was going to have to take him out. Yeah. Uh, she just wanted to make sure that he was the only one. Yeah. So... All yep, right. We were able, we're able halfway across the system here to pinpoint your ship specifically and fire at that kind of range with enough accuracy to take just you out. Next guy, do you really want, I, I can just go down the list. Of, I can go down the command structure if you want. I'd rather yeah. you read, I'd rather you surrender. Yeah. All right. On Manticore, Elizabeth meets with her inner circle to discuss everything that has taken place. During the meeting, Honor remarks that she believes the conflict with the Solarian League was inevitable, and she further thinks Manticore needs to destroy the League and break it up into several star nations that Manticore can deal with. Uh, The Queen at first rejects this idea, believing that it is more important to deal with Haven first. Honor tells her that, through her abilities as an empath, she has been able to determine that the latest conflict with Haven was engineered by Mesa to keep both the Manticorns and Haven Knights distracted. After her speech, Elizabeth is convinced to make an attempt to reconcile with Haven. What a great okay. scene, as we yes. mentioned before. <laughs> and a few of the points, there's one point that I'm not going to bring up here at this just yet. I'm, I'm going to wait till we get to the uh, quotes. but. I, I like the way she points, you know, she, she doesn't blow the cover, so to speak, but she, or does she, who visited her in the last book that gave her the reasons to, to believe what she believes as far as, uh, Victor Kasha and, uh, Anton Zewaki. Yeah. It's, it, it's kind of funny the way, just the way it brings it about and the strength with which honor confronts Elizabeth is definitely going to be. Like I said, it's worth it's really worth noting, and it's wow. Is this the same? Is this the same lady we saw in on Basilisk Station? <laughs> this new, new, unconfident, getting her feet wet commander. Yeah, no, she's thought things through very well and used her resources outstanding. That was that. As I said, that one scene right there was worth the price of the book. Meanwhile, an OFS administrator meets with Fleet Admiral Crandall, who is in command of a powerful fleet of capital ships close to the cluster. The administrator takes advantage of Crandall's prejudices against the neobarbs of Manticore and her rage at the destruction of Bing's flagship to convince her to prepare an attack on Manticoran forces in the Talbot sector. 
the Mason stealth ship arrives in the Manticoran system and deploys numerous missile pods. As the Mason ships leave the system, the commander remarks how, in a period of weeks, Manticore will experience a Christmas surprise. What an evil cliffhanger. Yes. So that is Operation Oyster Bay. And and we all reacted at that. Wait, you can't end it here. We've only read 755 pages. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, that's the cliffhanger. And it's like, come on, what are you doing? But yeah, whatever. So anyway, that is kind of the way the story shook out. And we're going to move over to JP, who's going to talk to us about themes. I'm going to offer up five themes. The first one will be a heavy, heavy emphasis on diplomacy and information out of our dime model, but but not excluding the military. But what we do get a naval battle in here, but the the real emphasis in here anchors to diplomacy and that even the military is being used as a diplomatic tool, specifically senior yep. officers. Michelle being that officer. And we've seen it before with Captain Zilwicky, the the dad, not Captain Zilwicky, the departed missus. And uh, we've seen it with Admiral Camulo, uh, Kamalo, and now we're seeing it with Michelle Henke. So uh-huh. senior military officers being used for diplomatic purposes. So that would be theme. It's part of their duties. Yes. yes. Well, in the military, at least as constructed... Here in the United States and around the world and most of our liberal democracies, they, uh, you know, our allies and all that, the military is subordinate to civil authority and becomes an instrument of political and diplomatic um, mm-hmm. actions. So uh, not that the military doesn't do military things, but it's not out running around on its own. I guess maybe if you're Bing, maybe you are, but yeah. So you the, know, most of the military folks that I've known would rather be dealing with a di- diplomatic aspect than right. shooting at people, to be, to be honest. Yeah, the people closest to the opportunity to die for their country are usually the ones who are most excited about not having to do that. Exactly. Uh, second, second theme would be uncontrollable allies. I can't remember if I mentioned it before, but we've seen it pop up here and there is silly people do silly things and it surprises other people who didn't really want whatever goes down to go down but we've seen it enough and we see it here big enough in the form of new tuscany's relationship with the mason alignment that i thought it was worth mentioning and in this case in this case you have new tuscany in what it believes is some sort of a an agreement an arrangement an alliance with the Mason alignment in, and in reality, the Mason alignment is driving hundred percent in control, but from new Tuscany's perspective, they must think that these Masons are just uh, uncontrollable. I thought we were working on this together would be kind of the mindset you are not. And even if you were Mesa is going to execute its agenda with or without your permission. And, uh, that'll even harken back to things. If yep. you've read or interested in that kind of thing, books like the Peloponnesian Wars, where Athens and Sparta, those wars were between Athens and Sparta, and on at least one instance, you have Corinth in there as an ally that starts a war between those two 
that neither wanted at the time, uncontrollable allies. You know, and you know, we also see this a little bit with Hangbo and Ferocio. Yeah. Uh, over on, over, over at the office and with Monica too. So it's that, it's a double-edged sword, right? You, you have friends because you need friends. And at the same time, your friends aren't your willless servants. They're your friends and they can do what they, what is in properly in their own best interest at times, but that may not be in your best interest. And we're watching that Mm -hmm. unfold here a, a lot in a big way as compared to in the past inside this story. So uncontrollable allies, number two. Number three is military subordination to civil authorities. I've already mentioned that that is that glorious last quarter or so of the book, especially captured very well in the second half of chapter 52, when we get to see, I think, what it should look like when a senior military officer, in this case it's honor, has to advise and explain to their superior, in this case, the queen, her very differing view on the primary threat to the empire. And it's a big deal, right? This is, this is, they're talking about two threats that could truly cause harm or even the end of the empire. Mm-hmm. So this isn't an academic discussion and honor and the queen are not in agreement on, on some level. I think they both agree that they're both threats, but they are disagreeing on what the primary threat is. The queen has held that the real threat continues to be haven while honor as we've talked about continues to hold that it's actually mesa and what makes this complex like the real world is both parties understand that both threats are credible like i was saying so that creates a massive tension and a a very i mean it it was unnerving to read this fictional account of this meeting that goes on and the debate that goes on with particularly between honor and the queen, but said the, uh, you know, Hamish is there and his brother. And I mean, it's, it's a bigger meeting than just the two ladies, but wow, is it, it goes back though to honor in the end, right or wrong. She is giving strong advice to somebody else who is really the responsible party to say, here's what we're going to do. And you know, JP, one of the thing, one of the aspects of both this and it kind of intersects between this and the dime model particular. And it's part of the cause of the discord between Elizabeth and honor. What is the behavior of manpower? They're just, they're just looking at manpower operating as a corporation. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Honor is looking at what manpower is doing and, you know, and Michelle is doing, Michelle is making the same conclusions. They're, on the scene, but honor's making them there in the conference room with Elizabeth. Manpower is not acting like a corporation. No, they're acting like a state. They're acting like a state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what's, t- that's what's tipping off honor to where the, where the threat really lie. Yeah. And her task is to change Elizabeth's focus because we know how Elizabeth feels about the Havenites we know why she feels that way. And I mean, we've been at war with the Havenites for however long it's time to end this. And then we'll move on to the next Uh thing. But in effect, the Havenites are no longer able to carry the fight to Manticore. So, you know, and there's another more uh, real and present threat 
on the horizon. Right. Okay. What's well, fun about this yeah. is Honor basically manages to convince Elizabeth that, okay, you might, Honor might be right. So she said, she basically, okay, fine. You are, if you're able to convince me, I'm going to send you to be, I'm going to send you to Haven to convince them. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember, remember Be careful Bing what you ask for. And what Bing's problem was, he was pre had, had these predispositions and a particular view of the world. Yeah. Well, in a, in a similar, but different way, we're seeing that with mm-hmm. Elizabeth. Yes, exactly. The big difference is yeah. honor her, one of her senior military officers, honor her friend, honor her peer of the realm, honor all these hats, honor the stead holder. She's the head of state of another country or a head of state within that country is doing her best to convince her of a different, uh, a different way to look at the problem. Bing won't relent. Mm-hmm. Bing dies. Yeah. The queen says, okay, okay, I'll, I, I see your argument. And the, and, and Elizabeth and Bing are not the same person just wearing different clothes. Elizabeth is a reasonable person. Bing was not, right. but they're, they, yeah. they're suffering through the same problem that all of us suffer through every day with lots of things, right? You, you have a particular view of the world and you want to make things fit into that view because it makes it even hard things. It makes them easier. Doesn't make them easy, but it makes them easier when you can plug stuff into a construct that makes sense. Yeah. Bing would not let it go. Elizabeth says, okay, fine. I I trust you. I know you. I'm I'm gonna accept your advice and I'm gonna make this decision. But the the theme that I'm highlighting here is that there wasn't a coup, there wasn't threats. Honor comes in and makes a very strong and very contentious argument to her superior. But that's where it would have ended if the queen said, nope, we're going to go after Haven. I don't believe you. You haven't, you haven't convinced me, you know, honor, honor knows her place as, as awesome as her place is. There is absolutely no doubt if Elizabeth came to a different conclusion at the end of the day, honor would have done her level best, 110% Mm -hmm. to carry out Elizabeth's instructions. Yes. Oh yeah. Yep. That's what it means to be a professional soldier. Obey the lawful orders. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't have to like what you're ordering me to do. If it's lawful and proper, I will do all I can do to execute your orders. I'll do it, even if I don't like it. Yeah. And that's what we've seen in honor yeah. in these. For the most part, the officers that are are wearing the queen's uniform, and we're seeing when we're seeing those kinds of officers as well. Certainly in Haven and. And now even perhaps in the Solarian League, but because they're out there, but yeah, but they you know, live that's in the not world. Just a military, right? That's You're not right. just a military lesson. I am professional level, fairly. I, I, I mean, I, I, it's not just that I can do the jobs that my superiors do. I have done those jobs, and you, fine. I'll give. They, they're paying me for my opinion. And for my thinking ability to think and the conclusions, but at the end of the day, I am going to submit to their final decision. And if it's frankly, if it's one I disagree with, I'm going to try even harder to make right. it successful. And Just because from we're, a we're not personal moral um, commitment, laborers pressed into service in the military or in, in nope. the professional world, at least in our in our world, right? Um, yeah, you can always walk we're away. We're choosing to be there. 
I can't do this. I resign. But we're not seeing that. We're not seeing coups. We're watching this very professional and very heavy yeah. circumstance unfold. And it's what an awesome scene that is. That Yep. And, you know, there are points where we, there are points in the saga where we do see the I can't do this. I resign. Yeah. And I, Path Raul, the reason I bring that up is because we had a discussion earlier about what what the alignment is doing, mm-hmm. and you know, there's an they there's an analogy on the Earth in the real world in our past, and and there were people who were tried and executed at the end of World War II because, in part, and I'm being a little bit generalistic, um, but in part. or to a great extent, their argument for doing the atrocious things they were doing that were purely evil was, I was just following orders. orders. And it goes back to the statement I made just a minute ago. Mm -hmm. What we're watching here directly and and indirectly through, you know, the first half of the Honorverse that we've read is we're talking about law and order and acceptable conduct by, by... Law and by codes and and um, people who are expected to follow lawful orders, not just to be, not just to obey. If you're ordered to do an illegal or an immoral thing, you actually have an obligation to stand up and say no. But that's not what we're seeing in the problem mm-hmm. with the problem children, like Bing, or perhaps like our friends in the alignment and and their subordinates. But it is what we're seeing with officers in Manticore to some extent officers in Haven and we have to get right. right. I don't want to drag this out, but which Haven are we talking about? Is it the Republic? Is it, you know, the, so, but we're, we're seeing in what I'll call the, the reasonable real world, we're seeing examples where certainly in the military officers in the story where they wrestle with this all the time. And, and then, and then we're seeing the outliers that, you could say we've seen foreshadowed on in the real world in the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany and and you can start there there are plenty of authoritarian and dictatorial governments that existed on the earth and and abused that power but but uh, once again Weber mm-hmm. the crazy amazing storyteller is unfolding an education through these books that is something a lot of people spend a lot of money to get bachelor's and master's degrees and even doctorates in foreign policy <laughs> yeah, and international relations and all that. And this is at the core of that education. So thank you. Thank you, David Weber again, yet again, I got uh, two more I'll cover real quick. One is, is a theme of cultural assimilation. It's, it comes to the forefront here and I have a, I have a quote about it later. Uh, as I recall, I, I do anyway, but we, Michelle Hankey wrestles with this in particular as they're bringing all these new, um, this new, this new quadrant into Manticore and how they're wrestling with having these people who are, it's not a two way joining in some sense, it's them joining the star kingdom, now the star empire. And the intent would be that they embrace what that means to be now citizens of the crown and and all of that, but but it's happening so fast, and it's such on such a large scale that Michelle wrestles with some of the aspects of that. Um, what you don't want to do is see a repeat of things like, arguably, like the Roman Empire, where their conquest happened so broadly and so fast that it it fueled in part the collapse mm-hmm. of the empire. They 
obviously they don't want that. I don't think Rome wanted it either, but we're watching Manticore strive not to let that happen, but it's not an on off switch that there's a, there's an art yeah. to how you assimilate people into your culture. And, um, that unfolds specifically in chapter 14 in the book for those that have the, the book with them. If you want to go yep. read how, and how you know, Michelle wrestles with this problem. And you know, the other side of the coin is of that is seen with new Tuscany. Yeah. How they, they want all the benefits and none of the responsibilities. Yes. Yeah. And I, I'll, I'll make an argument by the way that when the Soviet union collapsed in the early nineties, and then went to a policy that they called glasnost, right? Op this openness, that that was a movement towards um, a more democratic form of government and a more capitalistic economic policy. You want you, I want what the enemy had that beat me kind of mindset, which, by the way, includes things that obviously in the U.S. and in the NATO countries we would say are good things. So you know, individual liberties and freedom and. Uh, all, all of that. But as you watch the years unwind from 91 or so forward, what we quickly realized was the people who became the leaders inside of Russia, I won't say the entirety of the old Soviet Union, wanted all of the benefit, but they didn't actually want the, the form of government, nor did they want the economic policy. They wanted everything the way it was. They just wanted the benefit of capitalism. And and you can look today to see how that how that how's that going? Well, that's a rough road. Black markets become a powerful thing. Uh, it it's just a mess, and that's not it's not what we're here to talk about. But hang on to this topic, JP. You're going to be bringing it up again in a few okay. books. Well, then good. I called this out as a theme on purpose. Um, you 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 oh you're you're gonna yep. Do you remember when I've, in fact, it's funny, remember, what I think, I believe I've said in the past, uh, bone up on your Polish and Eastern yeah. European pronunciations? Yep. Oh, boy. You, 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 you have this knack for seeing where Weber's going to go on things. I suspect we look at the world the same way or a similar way. Hey, the last one, it is literally a mention, is this ongoing burden and cost of the loss of life in combat. And we see that yet again in this book, both military and civilian. So that that theme is runs strong in here as well. With mm -hmm. that, unless there is something else that you guys want to throw in, we should probably talk about our favorite plot, plot points. points. And uh, Jim, I'll, I'm going to roll back over to you and get your input. You know, as I read, I highlighted a bunch of places in this story I wanted to identify as favorite plot points. And, you know, I kept saying, oh, I like that one. Ooh, I like this one, you know. But my actual favorite didn't come along till the end of the book with uh, that meeting that we discussed between Elizabeth Honor and the other trusted advisors. In that scene, Elizabeth is considering sending the fleet to Haven to completely wipe it out of the stars in a final blow. And she gets a little angry when Honor lays the facts on uh, on the table of her situation of, well, when Honor lays the facts on the table of the situation point by point, uh, the tension in the room jumped off the page and made me feel mm, uncomfortable. It did, yeah. Yeah, it, it didn't feel like there were any guarantees that Elizabeth was going to accept Honor's logic, but... 
In her calm, cool manner, Honor managed to win Elizabeth over to her way of thinking and consider a reconciliation with Haven. So I, that, that was really, really my favorite point in the book. And the lesson, the, the lesson for honor is be careful what you ask for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what about you, JP? I'm with you. That whole culmination of events and the discussion between Elizabeth and honor is absolutely my favorite plot point. Second to that, if I, if there was a second, it would be, well, there is a second, there would be five maybe or more. I don't know. Like you, there were so many, but second to that would be all of this OFS slash Solarian slash Mason maneuvering that's occurring right up to the cliffhanger. Where is this going to go? Yeah. Yep. How about you, Raul? Two of mine are definitely plot points. And of course, the first one, I've said this almost from the opening, that last fourth of the book. It's not only one of my favorite parts of this novel. It's some of my favorite reading in the entire series. It's critical storytelling for the entire saga where our principal characters are finally putting everything together to what is really going on right as the alignment is setting up some sort of sneak attack to take down the Mantis. My second plot point, and I'm not going to say any one in particular is a favorite over the other, is the big reveal about manpower, Mesa, and the Mason alignment and the way it puts everything that we've read in the past into a new context. And like I said, keep in mind, this is something that has been written about, at least in an initial way, all the way going back. I mean, I think we first hear about genetic slavery in Mesa in the second anthology. So 10 years of novels getting up to this point. Uh, We've also had numerous hints dropped about a somewhere else that is part of this grand 600-year-old Detweiler plan. And like I just said, what makes this so amazing is this isn't a retcon. This isn't trying to milk a story or, hey, I don't want to end things now. This is something that had been planned from the very beginning before the first word of On Basilisk Station had even been written. And it's part of this 80,000-word writer's Bible that, uh, that had David Weber created. And yeah, there's been not some obvious changes since uh, Honor's still alive, but still, just wow. <laughs> Last, and I guess you could argue whether this is or isn't a plot point, but for me it is, seeing Michelle Hinkey out on her own. Like we've already said, I have always loved the character. I've always wanted to see more of her. Well, wish granted. And what is most important to me, she is not filling in the role as some sort of honor surrogate. Uh, she's not honor number two or honor. She is completely her own unique character. She's got her strengths. She's got her styles and very different styles. She's got her weaknesses. I love her tree cat slipper and old sweats. She's got all of the Winton steel. And the only word that fits is moxie. She's got a level of moxie you just better not underestimate. So those three are, are it for me. And from there, 
Unless anyone has anything to add, I'm going to toss it back to you, Jim, for some quotes. All right. So I'll go ahead and start off. Uh, my quote is rather lengthy. This is from chapter 43, a scene in which Anna reflects on her part in the destruction of the Gazelle Station at New Tuscany. Aldona Anna reclined in a comfortable chair, eyes closed, while haunting strains of music filled the small, luxuriously appointed compartment. She didn't simply listen to the music. She absorbed it, as if all the skin on her body were one enormous receptor. It was odd. A corner of her mind reflected dreamily. Of all the composers in the entire galaxy, it was a Manticoran who was her favorite. A Sphinxian, in fact. She'd never really understood why Hammerswell's skeins of melody spoke to her so strongly. Yet, they did. And there were times she needed that. Needed to let herself simply float upon the music. To empty herself of thoughts, of schemes, and plans. Of guilt. Don't be silly. The part of her which hadn't been filled with woodwinds in the subtle interplay of brasses and strings scolded yet again. You're here as part of a strategy to provoke a war that's going to kill millions, probably billions. And you're agonizing over killing 40,000 people? You're coming a little late to that particular party, aren't you, Aldona? It certainly didn't seem to bother you very much during the planning stages. No, it hadn't. But that had been when she was considering it an abstract strategy, part of a carefully crafted piece of superlative manipulation of the grand design which was going to have the greatest, most powerful political entity in the history of mankind dancing to the Mason alignment's piping. From that perspective, it had been exciting, enthralling. The sheer intoxication of playing the great game at such stratospheric heights and for such unimaginable stakes was like some powerful drug. There was a compulsion to it, a sense of reaching out near godlike hands to take the entire universe by the throat and force it to do her bidding. No wonder Albrecht is so fascinated with ancient mythology, she thought. I know, he says it's to remind him of how many blunders all those ancient gods made because they were so convinced of their own power and so jealous of their own prerogatives, so petty and capricious, so unwilling to work together. Given what we're trying to accomplish, I suppose he's right. We really do need to remember the dangers of convincing ourselves that we're gods. I'm sure all of that's true, but it's really about Prometheus for him, about daring to steal the forbidden fire, to raise his hand, our hand, against all the established power of the galaxy and make it change. Seen on that scale, the men, women, and children who had died aboard Gazelle were literally insignificant. Such a small casualty total would be lost to the simple rounding process when the statisticians began counting up the cost of the Alignment's magnificent vision. But that would only be after the Alignment had won, and this was now. This was when those deaths were fresh and immediate, and hers. Not a consequence of one of her strategies at a dozen removes, 
but deaths which she had personally ordered, personally contrived. It wasn't a Nordbrandt being provided with weapons through deniable cutouts and conduits. It was Aldona Anismovna personally giving the order. She'd get over it. She already knew that, although a part of her wanted to pretend she didn't, pretend there truly was some intercore of innocence that would resist the next time something like this came along. But she knew herself too well to fool herself for long, and so she didn't even try. She simply sat back in her chair aboard the palatially furnished streak-drive-equipped yacht, which had delivered her to do Tuscany and let the music fill her. Good quote. Ruthless. Really, really good quote. Ruthless. Heartless. Just... Creepy as hell. Oh, yes. Which is why it is such a good quote. It shows you just the kind of mental gymnastics some people can go through, that people can go through <laughs> to justify yeah. atrocities. Yep. All right. What do you got, JP? I have three quotes and one definition. I'll roll right into those. The first one is comes from a discussion between Michelle Hankey and Pritchard before she is ultimately released and sent on her mission to bring a message to the queen. And Michelle is going to contemplate or speculate about motives Haven, uh, the motives of Haven regarding the attempted assassination of honor in here, which was also, by the way, a part of the big exciting argument that goes on in the last quarter of the book. But but this is a setup to that. I'm not surprised you feel that way. And we here in the Republic have, a, have certainly had more than enough experience with operations mounted by rogue elements. I can only say I believe very strongly that the statement I just made is accurate. And I'll also say I've replaced both of my external and internal security chiefs with men I've known for years and whom I have the greatest personal confidence. If any rogue operation was mounted against Duchess Harrington, it was mounted without their knowledge or approval. Of that much, I'm absolutely positive. Oh, of course you are, Michelle thought sardonically. No peep would ever dream of assassinating an opposing fleet commander, and I'm sure none of them would ever decide it might be easier to get forgiveness afterward than permission ahead of time and fire away at honor on on their own. What was that line honor quoted me? Something about, will no one rid me of this pestilent priest? Or something like that, I think. I thought that was a, a cool historical reference to the problem we're, we're watching. The pestilent uh -huh. priest that she's referring to, or that Weber was writing about in here, is Thomas Beckett, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1100s. He was a friend of King Henry, a boyhood friend. Um, they obviously grew up on different paths. Henry ultimately ordains Becket as a priest and then a bishop and then the Archbishop of Canterbury in order to have him support Henry's intent to depart from the Catholic Church. When Henry did the, actually did this and established the Church of England and himself as the head of the church, Becket as the Archbishop of Canterbury, which was a Catholic post— opposed him. In frustration, Henry's charge to rid him of the priest resulted in several of his knights killing Becket in 1170 
When this happened, the Knights claimed they thought Henry had ordered this. In the words that he used about ridding him of the pestilent priest, Henry claimed that it wasn't what he meant to have happen. No one really knows what the king intended, but Beckett ends up dead at the hands of these knights who said they were following the orders of the king. Haven, in this case, presents the same problem. Mm-hmm. And what happened to those uh, people that followed what they thought were the king's interest? What did happen? I didn't think anything happened. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you can imagine Pritchard being totally honest. For, I mean, for real. I didn't order this, and none of my people who are in positions to order it ordered this. Okay. Yeah. Well, so said King Henry the second, and yet mm-hmm. three or four of his knights, as I recall, went in actually went in to the church and murdered Becket in the church, thinking or claiming that that's what they thought was the intent. So Got it, Pritchard. This is Michelle's wrestling with us, right? Got it that you're telling me even, and even believe it, that you didn't order this and none of your people sanctioned it, but that doesn't mean that your people didn't do it. Yeah. But she's wor- She's wrestling with this. She has not wholly concluded yep. that Pritchard is lying or whatever. She's wrestling with the problem that's in front of her, which is somebody tried to kill Honor, and the most logical somebody is somebody from Haven. No one else is obviously in a position that they would want to remove her from the from the battlefield, except for their mili- their primary military enemy. Back to Elizabeth and Honor struggling over who the primary threat is. Yeah. Uh, second quote is a cool a discussion that talks about this this cool balance between history and technology when it comes to military strategy and tactics. Whitehaven had been the champion and leader of the historical school, which had argued that changes in technology could only shift the relative values of strategic and tactical realities, which were themselves constant. That being so, the true art of strategy and naval command had lain in the understanding what those realities were and applying them in the most effective manner possible with the available tools not in looking for some sort of magical gimmick which would make them all go away. Hemphill, on the other hand, although substantially junior to Whitehaven, had been the leader of the Junicole, which is uh, translated as a young school. The Junicole had argued that the plateau, or as they preferred to call it, the stagnation in military technology over the past couple of centuries, had led to a matching stagnation in strategic and tactical thinking. The answer, as far as the Junicole's members were concerned, was to follow the pattern established, sort of, by the introduction of the laser head, and break the hardware stagnation, thus completely restructuring strategy and tactics, or even making conventional tactics and strategy completely irrelevant. The takeaway for me is that both of those schools mm. of thought, or both of those perspectives, exist in the real world as well. You call them what you want, but you know, an old school, yep, or a historical school, and then this young school or new school, and the balance between proven tactics and strategy based on history, and then technology on the other side. The fact is, both are needed, and the point is kind of made in that quote through the story. And you know what, JP. When they reach their compromise, you get exactly what you were talking about earlier when we were talking when we were talking about Bing and the military confrontation yeah. and your historical reference to uh, 
U.S. Civil War and uh, World War European yeah. tactic. Yep. yep. Great, great quote there. The last quote before the one definition is this description of the sacrifice military members and their families pay or make to serve. Um, in the U.S., like described here, they do it willingly. We don't have uh, we don't we don't have um, drafts. Have not drafted people into the military since uh, Vietnam. But I wanted to, you know, as a somewhat personal thing, but wanted to say thank you to David for capturing this so well. Uh, I've never heard this kind of complimentary language, meaning the what was said here and said here pretty tightly. Um, applied, but it was flattering to read and it was humbling to read. And uh, I just think David did a great job of capturing the quiet struggle that goes on within members of the military service and and their families. So here's that quote. There is a phrase, and and by the way, the context here, as I recall, was um, um, the bestowing of awards and recognition on, was it Kamala? Who was yes. it that was getting getting all the louds at this point? I think it was Kamalo. That was Kamalo. Yeah. Who who is uh, Jim? I think he mentioned it was a guy. When he shows up, we're like, yeah, I don't know if I like this guy. And he turns into a pretty amazing, pretty amazing guy. Yeah. And he's thanked it was for it. In that the end. Overstegen. It might have been Overstegen. Well, yeah, it's horrible because we just because read the they book. they, they uh, tricked they tricked Overstegen into showing up. Right. Yeah. Yes. To to the dinner the, and he. Yeah, this so, is when they tricked Overstegen. So if it was Overstegen, then then uh, cool. It's shame on me that I didn't jot that down. And we just read the book, and I can't. I'm drawing a blank on the name. <laughs> but but the the language used to thank him away from his family and away from his home, uh, basically going from one assignment to another, was very was very humbling and flattering. Here's the quote. There's a phrase with which Queen's officers become altogether too familiar, ladies and gentlemen. She went on, her tone much more serious. That phrase is the exigencies of the service. And what it means is that those men and women who have chosen to wear the Queen's uniform and to guard and protect all of us, you and me, frequently find their own lives being stepped upon by the demands of the service they have chosen to give. They do not simply risk life and limb for us, ladies and gentlemen. They also sacrifice the rest of their lives, sacrifice time as fathers and mothers, as wives and husbands. There can be no true, adequate compensation for the sacrifices men and women in uniform make for the people they serve and protect. How does one set a price on the willingness to serve? How does one set a proper wage for the willingness to die to protect others? And how does one honor those who have honored their oaths, given the last true measure of devotion in the service of their star nation and the belief in human dignity and human freedom? The truth is that we cannot give them the compensation, the honor they have so amply deserved of us. Yet whether what we can give them is what they deserve or not, we recognize our obligation to try to try to show them and everyone else what that we recognize the sacrifices they have made, that we understand how very much we owe them, and that they are to us pearls beyond price, men and women we cannot deserve, yet must always thank God, come to us anyway. And that quote harkened back to a quote I shared in an earlier book, 
about honor as a stedholder and an officer, and then applied to officers in general, striving to be worthy of what she described as the sacrificial service freely offered to her through her armsmen. And it came to a head when so many of her armsmen were dying mm -hmm. in their service to her. And, and it hurt her heart and it, you know, it just, it weighed heavy on her. And she made a comment about being worthy, striving to be worthy of that sacrifice. And now here we have, I think this is Medusa, right? That was giving. Yeah, this is Baroness Medusa yeah, was talking about Overstegen. Awarding him, from you know, some trinkets in the end, things that, you know, the stuff, the, none of it goes to heaven with you kind of thing, right? But just tokens of appreciation and trying to capture what it really represents through those words. That was really cool. Yeah. Last thing is a, and is like a you definition. Said, it was beautiful. Beautifully written. Yeah, it was uh, coming from a guy who has not served in uniform. It was amazing. I've never read or heard words quite like that. So, you know, David, you're you're awesome for that tribute. If I can be so bold as to apply it to people who serve in the real world in this regard. The last thing is this very straightforward definition of diplomacy. We're talking about diplomacy all the time with these books. And here is the quote, diplomacy is a game of perceptions. And that ends the quote. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is a game of perceptions. And we've watched that play out in a severe way uh, in the last few and books. And it's the truth this statement. Ralph? It's a real life yeah, truth it is, statement. Yeah, it is. This is that education that we're getting through a science fiction set of books. It's amazing. Raul, I'm going to hand off to you, man. Hey, so before before Raul takes over, I, I would like to point out uh, that the story of Thomas Beckett is really very well illustrated in a movie starring uh, Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole called Beckett. Uh, it's an older a classic. It's an older film. Uh, it's incredibly well done and uh you you learn a lot you can learn a lot from it you know for instance beckett was appointed archbishop of canterbury and so forth and so on well he warned henry don't do this <laughs> yes. and uh you know because beckett was afraid he would become the real deal which he did he wasn't any longer the king's man he became god's man uh yeah. yep and yeah, he rose to the office. Mm-hmm. And it, it said that in the place in the cathedral where Beckett fell, if you stand in that place, it's cold. No matter what time of year it is, it's always cold there. Hmm. I don't know. I've never been there. Probably never will go there, but I just thought I'd throw that in. Yeah, that movie was uh, 1964 yeah. was when that came out. Yep, it, it's... It's a very old movie, but like I said, it's considered a classic for a reason. And I believe you can watch it on Freebie, which is Amazon's uh, free service that has a few commercials during the during the playtime. Yeah. So you can either download the Freebie app or go on to Prime Video, either way, because that'll get you to the Freebie offerings as well, and you should be able to get to it from there. Yep. So if you want a great movie to watch. Yep, and Richard yeah. Burton and... Uh, Peter O'Toole are, are not slackers, awesome actors. So yeah, you'll be that, that should tell you enough right there with just those two in it. Yeah, O'Toole plays the king and uh, Burton plays Beckett. It's yeah. it's worth it. Mm -hmm. And kids today would say, Tool who? 
(laughs) (laughs) Okay. I guess that leaves me. Yeah. Go for it, Raul. All right. I only have one quote in, in, out of this book. For me, it was, usually I say how hard it is to pick a quote. For me, it was on this book. It was incredibly easy. We have all been talking about in and out that final fourth of the book where Honor and Elizabeth sort of come head to head. This is the key exchange and both not just Honor's comment, but what's going on in Elizabeth's head at this time. And in a lot of ways, it's what makes me call that last fourth of the book some of the best reading of the series. It's a bit long, but it has to be here in this uh, in in the quote listing. So this starts out with honor speaking. Yes, we are at war with the Republic of Haven, and yes, they fired the first shot, and yes, they even launched the attack on our home system, and a lot of people have been killed. A lot of people I knew, people who weren't just professional colleagues, but who've been friends of mine for decades. Friends who'd literally risked their lives against impossible odds to save mine when they didn't have to, if you remember that little jaunt to Cerberus. So believe me, I know all about anger, and I know all the reasons for trust and hostility. But look at the evidence, for God's sake. Mike hit it exactly in her report. Manpower is operating like a hostile star nation, and we're the object of its hostility. Worse, it's got a hell of a lot more resources than we ever thought it did, even if it's hijacking some of them from the Sollies. And her almond-shaped, dark brown eyes pinned Elizabeth into her chair. If there's anyone else in the galaxy who's even more inclined than the legislaturalist or Oscar St. Just State Security ever were to use assassination as a tool, it's manpower. I admire you and I respect you both as my monarch and as a person and as a friend, Elizabeth, but you're wrong. Whatever you may think, the real threat to the Star Empire at this moment isn't in Nouveau Paris or old Chicago at all. It's in the Mesa system and it's in the process of destroying the Star Kingdom you're responsible for ruling. The tension hovering in the conference room was hard enough to chip with a knife as the two women locked eyes. And as those two sets of brown eyes met, Elizabeth went and realized something emotionally that she'd long since recognized intellectually, something Honor's analysis of any possible confrontation with the Salarian League had driven home in this very room only three weeks earlier. Honor Alexander Harrington had become the closest thing Elizabeth III had to a true peer, Admiral, Countess, Duchess, and Steadholder, the third-ranking member of the Star Empire's peerage, a ruling head of state in her own right, and someone who had been born to none of those titles and identities, someone who had won them, who paid for them in the cold, hard cash of combat, in the loss of people for whom she cared deeply, in all the thousands of deaths, enemy and friend alike, she had taken onto her own conscience in the service of Elizabeth's kingdom and in her own blood someone who had received many of those titles and honors from Elizabeth's own hands because she damn well deserved them. Yeah. That quote has to be here. Yes. 
If you could summarize that whole quarter of the book, that's it. That's the... That's it. Mm -hmm. And, And in a way, it summarizes the first half of the saga. This is where Honor's at now. Yeah. It might be time for some closing thoughts. And maybe a few takeaways. And a few takeaways. Jim, you want to kick us off? Sure will. So this is the story following Mike's release by Haven. It's, a, it's an amazing, complex story filled with um, examples of subterfuge and how an entity can manipulate already tense situations to fulfill their own means. I'm, of course, speaking of Manpower Inc.'s efforts to keep uh, the Manticore and Havenite wars going while preserving their own interests in the Talbot Quadrant, keep those uh, interests safe for them. But it always seems, and as JP always says, even in the best thought-out plan, the enemy always has a say. Thanks to Honor, the Star Kingdom is figuring out what is actually going on, and fortunately, she's willing to risk the anger of her queen to bring the facts to light and hopefully turn the fight in the direction it needs to go. This book is jam-packed full of any kind of conflict one might want to indulge in. It is a complex story well-written, as we have come to expect from David Weber. David prefaced the story with a note that the opening chapters were not a rehash, but another look at previous events that we've already read, I certainly was not put off by this at all because we got a whole new perspective of things and a lot more in-depth knowledge of those events. My takeaway, while one is enjoying a beautiful vista, one should always be on the watch for a snake in the grass to remind us appearances are deceiving. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, Next Next, over to you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Next, over to you, JP. I don't know how David or anyone else could handle the complexity of the story any better than we've seen in this book, uh, along with the last two books, because they're they're giving us this depth and breadth together. Amazing storytelling with a universe that's as complex as the real world, I think, and uh, or certainly represents the complexity of the real world takeaway for me, nothing about the situation that we're now in the middle of is comforting or in good shape, but there was a feeling uh, that there's some settling going on. And then came the cliffhanger ending. So I am nervous that we haven't seen the worst of things yet. How about you, Raul? Okay. This is coming from the perspective of, someone who read these some of these at release times as well as someone who's come through and reread them in sequence from in my opinion the perspective of the way they were intended when written uh so while torture freedom overlaps this book and at all costs you know there's a lot of overlap between all three books it's really storm from the shadows that marks the transition between the first and second halves of this whole epic. And as you guys have said, uh, the interleaf between all three of these arcs, these locations, which is what the series really, which was the different quote series really divides it into, that interleaving is delicate and the repeated scenes really fit perfectly in understanding the story uh, better. In fact, I'll go say 
so far as to say it's they were the repeats are necessary to really understand the story. Now, I'm going to admit it didn't quite feel like that. I didn't quite share have that opinion back when I had to wait and wait and wait between the novels. But the very first time I did a straight read through, it made perfect sense what uh, David Weber was doing, and I don't think I've seen anything like this uh, before or since, except maybe in K-dramas where, you know, those little repeat segments at the beginning or end of an episode are sort of staple. But nothing I've ever really seen has done it on the scale that he's done it here. And as far as a takeaway, and we're going to see more of this, uh, wars can be fought in the conference room as much as on the battlefield. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And... Actually, I am going to have one more. Ta- I, I, I'm going to toss in one more takeaway. Go. Cool. Sometimes it is good to have to repeat a show. <laughs> Fans, we, we had a technical glitch with because of some weather, and we lost our first recording. And as frustrating as it was at that time, with what we've got on this recording, I am so glad that that happened. Not only did I get to spend more time with my friends, I, I think we got an even better product. Uh, I agree. But anyway, ratings, Jim. Okay. <laughs> you get to start us. <laughs> <The> drama. <laughs> Jim. I, I, think, I, I don't think it's any surprise to anybody when I say I'm going to give this five Neobarbs. Five Neobarbs. That's nice. <laughs> I'm going to pile on and give it five powerful multi-drive missiles. Well, for me, it's five spider drive stealth ships. And you know, that might actually be how many were in the book. I'd have to double check. Yeah, so let me see. Purely coincidence. Purely coincidence, if so. Jim, can you handle the math? Square root, don't forget the square root. Oh, yeah. No, he's a musician. He's a musician, and this means counting past four. Yeah, well, I'll count to four three times and count to three. (laughs) (laughs) At any rate, uh, the math isn't all that difficult because we get an overall rating for the three of us of a five out of five. If we look over at Goodreads, they report a 4.14 with 4,829 ratings. And on Amazon... It's a 4.5 with 1,345 ratings. So this is bringing us to the end of our show, and we got a few shout-outs. I'm going to start out with a shout-out to Mr. Hank Davis and his TPE network of fun and informative podcasts. He is our host for this show, and we are very thankful to have him uh, as a friend and helping us out. How about, Raul, do we have any other shout-outs? Yes, I do. I, I've already mentioned uh, Jeff. Uh, I, love the, uh, I love the Onion comment, and I'm glad someone caught, I, I'm <laughs> glad someone caught the uh, gentle teasing of these two gentlemen. <laughs> Sam over on Facebook, also a thank you uh, for the appreciation for the episode. He, he suggests we take a look at uh, the uh, Empire of Man books that, that uh, David Weber wrote with John Ringo. I'm not actually as familiar with them, so that would be actual new territory for me as well. I know we have gone incredibly long. 
Uh, so I do want to still thank, but I still want to still want to thank uh, Carl and Zachary and Baz for their continued uh, kind comments. And I also want to thank a new e- a new uh, email from uh, Brett for his kind words as well. Uh, thank you all. And I know I've probably I'm I'm certain I, I've missed a few people. Uh, please forgive me on that. And definitely keep the comments coming. Okay. So Jim. What's next? Next, we continue to depart from the Honor Harrington main series uh, to read Torch of Freedom, the second book of the Crown of Slaves series by David Weber and Eric Flint. It will be a look into the activities of Anton Zilwicky and Victor Kasha, who work undercover to undercover the truth behind a wave of mysterious assassinations launched against Manticore and Torch. Yep. And I guess we can already see just from that description how that's going to connect and overlap with our last War of Honor book. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a pretty safe bet. Yep. So. This is going to be a fun read, you guys. It, it's a very different style of writing than either. That's one of the other things that sticks out between the different uh, arcs is that there is some definite changes in writing styles. Well, and, and we see Eric. Flint's influence in this one. Oh yes, not just influence. Yes, he co-authored will, the book, so we're yeah. gonna get that. Yep. There's a level of there, there's a sense of irreverence that Flint brings. All right, so we're gonna close this out. Say good night, yep. JP. Good night, JP. Night, everybody. So long, everybody. Thank you for listening to Honorverse today. We welcome your feedback. Email us at honorverse at tpenetwork.com. We are a proud part of TPE Network. Visit us on the web at honorverse.net, on social media, or tpenetwork.com. You can subscribe to Honorverse today by visiting tpenetwork.com slash subscribe. Visit TPE Network for the very best in podcasting. Opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts. They do not reflect the opinions or views of Bain Books, the authors, or TPE Network. Visit Bain.com for the best in science fiction. Many of their books are available from the Bain Free Library found at their site. Theme music is Honor and Sword by Zakar Valaha. Check his website found in the show notes for all your podcasting music needs. Mike Hankey's flagship, Ajax, winds up with its hyperactive off... (sighs) (laughs) And that also happened. (laughs) (laughs) Good night, nurse. All right.
Yep, take a drink. Okay. <laughs> All right. Moving along. Timus Timus Thousman. Take a drink. All right. All right. New Tuscany scuttles one of its own merchant ships as a manticorn vessel approaches for inspection, attempting to make it look like it was the manticorn ship. Even though it is obvious that the merchant ship was destroyed internally, Bing hastens to protect them from further aggression. Admiral Kumhalo and Mike, unaware of Bing's presence in the system, dispatch three destroyers to complain about their tactics. As soon as the destroyers arrive on the scene... What, 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 what? Four destroyers. Oh, all right. They dispatched four destroyers. Okay. Kaplan was the at the last moment. Here. They Kaplan was told to stay back in the system and not go into the system. Okay. Oh, where'd you go? Okay. 